Good morning. I'm so glad you're here. We are in this series in 1 John. I'm calling that you may know. And as you're opening to 1 John, I want to, if I may, make two programming notes before I begin the sermon proper. And the two programming notes are these. Uh, First off, uh, the Bible says that we're to rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those who weep. So I think it's appropriate to rejoice. Go Bearcats. So if you're... We're certainly uh, uh, proud of that, and uh, some members of that team are members here at Coleman First Baptist Church, but we celebrate that. That's fun. The um, uh, second programming note doesn't affect you if you worship in this service, the 8 a.m. service. This won't affect you, but I want you to know about it so that you can help spread the word. Uh, and that is that uh, we, we, we bumped into one of those good problems yet again. And the 9.30 service is uh, at capacity. It's really over capacity. And the 9.30 service has been uh, in the sanctuary. And it's over capacity. And I could, I could tell you about uh, uh, numbers and percent capacities, but none of that is better than illustrating it this way, y'all. In a, like, I have eyewitnesses. In a Southern Baptist church, the last few Sundays, The front row has been filled. Yeah, I I rest my case. So we need to move to the rock, and we're going to make that move on April 3rd in the 930 service. Everybody got it? The 8 a.m. service is here in the sanctuary. No change. But let folks know that you know, or if sometimes you come to the 930 service, if on April 3rd you come to the sanctuary, you're at the right time, you're at 930, and there's nobody here, it might not be the rapture. It might be that folks are just right over there in the gym. So we call the gym the Rock, the Recreation Outreach Center, and it's right over there, and that will give capacity for everybody uh, to have a seat. And so that's the move we're making. And if somebody says, why are we moving to the rock? You tell them, y'all, front row. So we rejoice in that. Well, I, um, I don't know if I'm the only one, but maybe you're like me. What do you do with a troubled conscience? Hmm? Am I the only one who, some mornings, it's like I wake up and there has been a prosecuting attorney in my head working all night long accusation, condemnation. How do you deal with that? What does a Christian do with, with a, a, a troubled conscience? Because it, it's complicated. I think, I think the world's culture would say you dismiss it, right? Yeah, uh, we don't need that negativity in our life. And there's some truth, I suppose, to that. We don't need negativity in our life. But it's complicated for a Christian because w- I believe in right and wrong and You know, what if my conscience is right? What if it's convicting me over the fact that I have done wrong? What do I do then? I can't just dismiss it if in some ways it's right. What if I've disobeyed God and broken his heart? On the other hand, how do I know if I have like a a hyperactive conscience that's accusing me of too much? Or how do I know maybe the voice of the enemy has snuck in there and added to accusation? What do you do with that? Well, thankfully, we are not the first Christians to wrestle with this question. What do you do with accusation? What do you do with condemnation? The anxiety of a troubled heart. 1 John chapter 3 
is going to share with us a way forward. And I wanted to, because this is a complicated chapter in the way it's laid out, I wanted to give us some pegs upon which we can structure the flow of the message. So note takers rejoice. I present to you an outline. (laughs) And there are three points. The first one is up here, the command we obey, the command we obey, The second is the condemnation we face. Oh, they're even going to be alliterative, I tell you. The command we obey, the condemnation we face, the communion we enjoy. So you might want to give yourself those three headings. Leave a lot of room for the first one. You won't need as much room for the second and third. But the command we obey, the condemnation we face, the communion we enjoy. All right? Let's get right to it. The command we obey. Okay, so pop quiz. What would you say is the command of God? Now, if your mind immediately says, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, What about the Ten Commandments? Yeah, 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 okay. But what about the, keyword the? What is the fundamental command? What does it mean to be a Christian? What is the command? If your mind is going to, well, I suppose when you boil it all down, what it really means to be a Christian is to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior, to, to be born again by his spirit. I mean, to be a rescued sinner. I guess it's faith and trust in Jesus. If you think that the command of God is to believe in Jesus, you'd have pretty good sp- uh, scriptural backing. Doesn't John 6 say this is the command that you believe in the one God has sent? Doesn't John chapter 20, verse 31 say, I wrote this whole gospel that you may believe and that by believing you may have life in his name? So that, that'd be a pretty good answer. You'd have a lot of scriptural backing to say the fundamental command is is to believe in the name of Jesus for salvation. That's, that's what it means. If you, if you get that command right, you're a Christian. Okay. But what if your mind went somewhere else? What if your mind went to the words of Jesus who said in John 13, a new command I leave to you that you what? Love one another. You'd have pretty good scriptural backing for that too. It goes all the way back to Leviticus 19. Love one another. And over and over in the book of John, he's been saying, hey, little children, love one another. Yeah, we heard that message. You got a new one, John? Yeah, try this one. Love one another, right? Yeah, 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 we got, you know, but what's next? And he would show up at a place, love one another. So if you said the fundamental command of God is to love one another, you'd have pretty good scriptural backing. So which is it? Should we flip a coin? Here we go. Let's find out. Let's see who got it right. You want to go ahead and in your mind decide which side you're on? All right, let's see who gets it right. Turn to 1 John 3, 23. Here we go. And this is his commandment. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Oh, you're both right. <laughs> I love this. This is his singular commandment. Doctrinal faith in Jesus that is not just a head knowledge. This, when it says believe in the name, it means you are trusting, you are leaning, you are completely uh, uh, trusting in the one name given among men. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. It means you're trusting Jesus as your salvation. So belief and faith in, in Jesus Messiah and, and love one another just as he commanded us. For John, it would make no sense. Can you imagine meeting a Christian? Or for that matter, can you imagine a style of church that would say, we are all about doctrinal truth. Hmm? We're gonna make sure you believe the right things. 
but we don't really love anybody. John would say, that's insane. That makes no sense. Can you imagine the flip side? We just love everybody. Doesn't matter what you believe, we're just going to love. All we care about is love, and it doesn't matter if we have any understanding or faith in Jesus Christ. You can believe in Jesus Christ or or Buddha or Muhammad, the prophet, any of it. Doesn't matter. We're just going to love everybody. John would say, that makes absolutely no sense. He would say, that, there, there's no such thing. To, to say that I want to be a believing Christian without loving one another, or I want to love one another without, being, without belief in the Son of God, is like saying, I want a candle, but uh, I just want the flame. I don't want the light. Or just give me the light, but please hold the flame. He'd say, whoa, whoa, whoa. The, 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 one emanates from the other. So this is the main thrust of the passage. This is the command we obey. Belief in Jesus Christ and love for one another. But we got to back up because John spends so much time sort of unpacking and tracing out what he means by love. Since this is the Christian command, love one another, believe in Jesus, love one another, then we get to this, then we'll come to the condemnation we face and finally the communion we enjoy. So let's go, let's back up to verse 11 where this command is stated plainly. Can you go back to verse 11? For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. I love that. It goes all the way back to the beginning. Uh, Both the doctrine, the truth of Jesus Christ, and Christian ethics are unalterable from the beginning. Why is that such a big deal? Think about it. Uh, Without this bedrock of faith, can you imagine Culture has to reinvent what's right and wrong every generation. We don't have to do that. It's from the beginning. Not something? It must be exhausting every generation to figure out what's right and what's wrong, what's going to be morally acceptable, and what has to be canceled. We don't have to be exhausted by that. But that's also why every generation as a christian every generation depending on what generation you're in it seems like every few years it's why you're going to suddenly feel like an alien you're going to feel like an alien in your home in, in your home country why well because the, the, the culture is constantly shifting what's right what's wrong whereas a christian is going to stand on a bedrock of that which we heard from the beginning we're going to love one another We're going to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, you never have to change. So in 1950, an obedient Christian feels totally like an alien. Why? Because of segregation. They're looking around going, how can we segregate people based on the color of their skin? They were made in the image of God. So they feel like an alien. In 2022, Christians feel like an alien because of the sexual ethic. It's currently uh, being uh, portrayed as, as what's right and wrong. Well, that's all. Look, we're going to continue to face these things over and over again. Why? Because we stand under the authority of Scripture. And, and culture is going to continue to bump into these things. But we have that which is from the beginning. You see? We love one another. What is this love? John will tell you, John will tell you exactly what this love is, but not yet. First, he's going to show us what this love is not. Look at verse 12. We gotta love one another. Verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Now you have to understand, in scripture, Cain is sort of shorthand for like 
uh, evil and hatred and, and murder. Like when the Bible needs a, a quick example of wickedness personified, they go to Cain. It's kind of like in modern conversation when we think of an example of evil personified, you say, well, like Hitler. You know, when you say Hitler, everybody knows, okay, you're talking about wickedness personified. It's the same thing. They use Cain in this way. The Bible would say, well, you know Cain. And this is brilliant because immediately what we do when we see an example like that, I mean, can you imagine? Guys, we should love, we need to love one another. Okay, don't be like Hitler. If I said that, you'd be like, well, well if, that, if that's the standard, you know. Guys, we should love one another. Don't be like Cain who murdered his brother. Everybody sort of, don't you sort of let yourself off the hook. You're like, whew, well, if Cain is the standard, I'm actually doing pretty well. <laughs> the bar is pretty low. <laughs> if Cain is the standard, I'm doing good. And then a little subtle move, and I think, I think he learned this from Jesus because he watched Jesus do this so many times, where he would make this subtle, almost imperceptible, logical move, and you didn't know it, but it was checkmate. And he just kind of throws that in there. He says, yeah, you know, don't, don't be like Cain. And everybody's like, whew, glad this sermon's not for me. And then he says, but, but why, and why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. You see what he did there? He looked past the murder into the motive. John's answer to the question, why did he murder him, is a penetrating, penetrating critique of fallen human nature. It wasn't that Abel did anything against him. It was his total resentment of the righteousness of Abel. Do you remember the story of Cain and Abel? It goes back to Genesis chapter 4. Cain and Abel are the children of Adam and Eve. They both offer sacrifices. Cain was a farmer, so he offered from the crops of his field. Abel was a, a shepherd, so he offered from, the, the, from his livestock. Now, one offering was acceptable before God and one was not. Abel's was accepted, Cain's was not, and Cain was furious about it. Why? Why was one offering accepted and not the other? It was a devotion offering. You were supposed to bring the best of what you give. Cain was a farmer. He gave crops. Abel was a herdsman. I mean, what's, did, did, does God prefer herdsmen over farmers? Of course not. Why was one offering accepted and one not? Here's why. Because what was true of offerings to God long ago remains true today. God is not interested in an offering that is divorced from a heart that is for him. The offering is connected to the offerer's heart. They cannot be divorced. So if, if your heart is far from God, your offering, no matter what it is, is is not acceptable to God. Jesus says the same thing. If you're offering, doesn't he say, if you're offering at the altar, you're worshiping, and you realize you've got aught against your brother, go and leave your offering. Go be reconciled to your brother. Go make it right. Then come back, and when you offer something, then your offering will actually mean something. See? Cain is sort of, if you will, playing church. You know, he's calling himself a brother so that when he goes to church and offers up his worship, he doesn't mean a word of it. He's out there out of duty or tradition or all his life. Adam and Eve dragged him there. <laughs> Either way, he doesn't have any love for God. God even speaks to him and gives him a warning, a chance to, to, to do right. But he sees Abel walking in righteousness. He can't take it anymore. He lures him into the field one day and murders him. John's saying, look at the heart. Before you say, wait, we would never be like Cain. He says, look at what's behind that. Before we say, I would never murder a brother or sister. John says, but can't you see murder takes root in bitterness, in jealousy. Oh, that envy, that, that strife. 
that resentment, and ultimately that hatred. So for everybody who had said, I, w- I would never murder, I'd never be like Cain, John says, yeah, but, but, but can't you see that, that there's a little seed there of bitterness, a little root of anger? Have you ever had, had in- envy to the point of hatred of somebody? And if you, if you, if you talk like that, you're like, well, I, yeah, I, I suppose I have. I have had hatred. Verse 15, well, checkmate. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Now here, John's not overstating this. He's just faithfully representing Jesus' teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. You remember in Matthew 5 where Jesus said, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. Everybody who murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say everyone who has anger in his heart toward his brother is liable for the judgment. Murder is the logical consequence of a refusal to love. Hatred is the wish that a person, the other person wasn't there. Well, that's like saying you wish they were gone. You wish they were dead. And that's probably why in Genesis 4, the Lord came to Cain as he was sulking in self-pity before the murder. And he says, oh, Cain, don't you see? Sin is crouching at your door. It wants to have you. I don't know, have you ever, uh, any of you uh, have, have cats? Sin is crouching at your door. And you got a little cat, and they're just this cute little house cat until they see a bug. And suddenly, they're back in the jungle. Suddenly something takes over them and they crouch down low and every little fiber of their being, every little sinew is, is, is ready to pounce, is ready to strike. What are they doing? They're making themselves low. They're making themselves unable to be seen. Why? Because they're about to pounce. Sin always does that. Sin always crouches and says, I'm not that big. I'm not that big a deal. I'm really small. I'll just stay over here in the corner. Sin will never stay in the corner. But it's crouching. It wants to, what God says in Genesis, the Lord says, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you. Sin wants to have Cain, to take over his whole life in full-blown murder. That's what sin does. It is crouching. Listen carefully. Every grudge Well, yeah, occasionally I hold a grudge. Don't play with that. Every grudge is murder in a little ball. Every grudge wants to be murder. Every little lust is not harmless. Every lust wants to be adultery. Lust is just adultery in a little ball. Every envy wants to be robbery. Every self-pity wants to be idolatry. Stop underestimating sin. See it for what it is. It's a predator, and its desire is to have you. And think about that. The way we, you'd say, well, I, you know, I would never murder. But here, here, if you're guilty of talking bad about somebody, think about the language we use. Think about the language you use when you hear somebody talking bad about somebody. It's language of violence. You ever considered that? Did you hear them? What were they doing? Whoo, they were tearing them down. Tearing them down. With what? Well, with little cuts and digs. Oh man, you, you really, you were digging on her. You, you had some, some cuts, some digs, some jabs, some stabs. And it leads to character assassination. You hear these are all words of murder, right? He's saying that's the heart behind it. I'll never forget being a little boy. It can happen even in religious settings. I'll never forget being a little boy in Bible drill. Bible drill, you remember Bible drill? Anybody Bible drill? How fast can you find the scripture? <laughs> You know, you get rewards based on how fast you could find the scripture. I remember being next to this little girl. It's always beating me. 
And they even like stepped forward. They congratulated her. So you know what I did? I murdered her. Right there in Bible drill. Why? Because that seed of envy and jealousy in, of all places, a Bible drill, everybody see the irony, can be a seed of what? Murder. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And we know, John's saying, when you engage in those things, you're not loving. Say all you want about the family of God. That's hatred. And we know that, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. You see that? Uh, Verse 15b, you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That obviously doesn't mean that a murderer can never receive eternal life. We, no, no, no. What it means is th- those are mutually exclusive, mutually incompatible things. How can you have the life of Christ in you if you also have a life of hatred and murder? And then verses 13 and 14 are sort of an aside here. Uh, don't, that, by the way, that's why the world persecutes Christians. We've got enough haters on the outside We've got enough haters there. Do not be surprised, brothers, the world hates you. Literally, stop marveling. Don't be shocked by this. Cain is simply a prototype of the world. Those who are not of the world, though, those who are not of the world can know they are saved. Now, recall uh, uh, the three indicators, right? Last week, Pastor BJ uh, uh, spoke about one of these indicators. Remember, over and over, like a spiraling staircase, he comes back to these three themes, right? Light, uh, life. Love, these three indicators, obedience, uh, uh, right thinking, right doctrine about Jesus, obedience, right acting, truth, right thinking, and love, right, the social test. And so here, this third indicator, you can know, remember this whole book is about assurance of salvation. One way we know, we pass the love indicator. Verse 14, we know that we've passed out of death into life. Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So there it is. Love is the evidence of new life. Now, I want to point out, love is the evidence of new life, not the cause. I I keep going back to this, but this cannot be misunderstood. Uh, Because there is love, that is evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in your life, that he has regenerated you. It is not the cause. You can't love your way into the kingdom of heaven, just like you can't uh, uh, take a doctrinal test to get into the kingdom of heaven, and you can't um, uh, 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 take a, uh, a moral obedience test. Instead, these things are the evidence of a heart that's been changed by God. I've used this, I keep saying the same thing, but I, I really think it's not, it's not math test, it's COVID test, right? So a COVID test just reveals what you have. You take those take-home COVID tests and you, you, it reveals what you have. You don't, the, the, the test doesn't give you COVID, I don't think. <laughs> Instead, it reveals what you already have. Oh, that's how it is with the love test. The love doesn't make you born again. The love reveals you've been born from above. So let me ask you, is there evidence in your life of love? Love particularly for other Christians. Can I ask you, are you growing, each day, are you growing to love Christians just a little bit more? Let me ask it this way. Do you find your heart is getting more and more judgmental of other Christians or less and less judgmental of other Christians? John would say, this is an evidence. This is evidence. As you mature and grow in your faith, that's evidence. You you have a greater hunger each year. Uh, Let me ask it this way. Each year, do you find you long to worship and fellowship with God's people more or less and less and less? See, these are all ways of asking the same question. Uh, What about the love for the brothers? Well, you can point to that. You can say that's evidence. 
Look, the Holy Spirit must be alive in me because look, I have this desire, this hunger to be with other people. I'm growing less judgmental and censorious of other Christians. With apologies to Descartes, you might paraphrase it this way. I love, therefore I am a believer. Now, now that John has shown us the evidence of love and given us the prime example of what love is not, okay, do not be like Cain. Cain was a murderer, and everybody who has hatred is just, that's just, that's, hatred just want to be murderer. Don't have that in your heart. Instead, what is the prime opposite of that? Verse 16. By this we know love. It's Jesus Christ. See, the exact opposite is, by this we know love. He laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Boy, John loves, if John were a photographer, he wouldn't do color photographs. John would be Ansel Adams, man. John loves black and white, doesn't he? Have you noticed that in this, in this, in your reading of 1 John? He loves to keep it dead simple. Hatred, whose prototype is Cain, contrast with love, the prototype of love is Jesus Christ. Hatred originates in the devil. Love originates in God. Hatred is the evidence that somebody is spiritually dead. Love is the evidence that somebody's eternally alive. Hatred ultimately takes the form of murder, taking life from another. Love ultimately takes the form of self-sacrifice, giving to another. The prototype, the ultimate example, of course, Jesus' death on a cross. He's being very specific. He says, you want to know what love is? Look to the cross. Every culture, including ours, loves love in a general sense. They love to talk about love or define love in a million ways. But for John, there is one central defining image. And it's not just the teachings of our founder, Jesus Christ. It's not just his teachings. It's his death on the cross. It's not just the Sermon on the Mount. It's the cross on the hill. I hope you can see the riches of truth in this little verse. It tells us, among other things, that Christ's death was voluntary and vicarious. Do you see that in there? Do you see that in the verse? Um, for everybody who says, so uh, this was a big deal. We ran into this in New York all the time. For those who would say the Romans crucified Jesus, you know, it was Pilate. That's who, he was crushed under the Roman Empire. They got it wrong. And for those who would say, and this caused a lot of uh, deep pain and, and very real violence and hurt uh, throughout centuries, that the Jews killed Jesus. See, they would say, well, it was the chief priests and the, and the Pharisees, so it was the Jews who killed Jesus. That's also not, in fact, correct. It wasn't the Romans that killed him. It wasn't the Jews that killed him. He laid down his life. He came to die. He came out of love. So his death was voluntary. Don't let anybody tell you different. Nobody took his life from him. He gave it up. And he gave it up how? It was not just voluntary. His death was vicarious. He gave up his life how? He gave it up for us. You see that? For us. What does that mean? We know Jesus died on the cross, but what does that have to do with us? How does that help us know love? So many people would say, yeah, 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 I know that Jesus Christ died on the cross, so what does it have to do with me? It's like there has to be that connection, and only the Holy Spirit can do that in a person's life where they suddenly, it's like a, a, a light is switched where they realize, wait, it's not just that he died on the cross, it's that he died for us. If we don't have an understanding of, of, of why Christ had to die, then the whole thing is meaningless. It just doesn't make any sense. 
I was talking last night. I was preaching in uh, Athens, Alabama uh, this weekend, and uh, 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 somebody made that point that uh, uh, he had preached over and over and shared the gospel over and over and over. And um, finally, this man who had been in church his whole life, 50 years he's been hearing the gospel, he finally got saved. And he came to his preacher, and he was like, that's the first time anybody's ever explained to me the gospel. And the preacher was like, (laughs) he had explained it week after week. But he's right. Why? Because the Holy Spirit had to come and bring him to new life. Or he could never understand. See, he had no revelation. He died for us. And until you get this revelation, uh, you'll always think of Jesus Christ's death as just sort of, well, as just a martyr, death on a cross. What does it have to do for me? Uh, Different preachers have used the same version of this illustration in many ways. But if we're walking along this uh, train track out here... um, and uh, uh, you're walking with someone, and uh, a train is coming, and you're just sort of walking. You're plenty, you're safe distance from the train, and the train is coming, and they, and they look at you just as the train gets there and says, I love you, and jump in front of the train, and they're killed. You would say, that was, that was crazy. That, that made no sense. What? That was, they died, but in what sense does that have anything to do with me? On the other hand, of course, if you were somehow on the tracks and you were unaware that a train was coming and at the last moment this person pushed you out of the way and they were hit by the train and they died, you would say, greater love has no man than this. This is incredibly great love. Look how much they loved me. Why? Because you finally realize it wasn't just a death, it was a death for us. His death was to save us. It was It was voluntary. It was vicarious atonement. Incredibly, the verse goes on to say the love of Jesus, that that kind of love is expected of each individual Christian. Can you imagine? He doesn't mean, obviously, that each individual Christian is to atone for the sins of the world. Only Jesus, as the once-for-all sacrifice, could do that. But we're to lay down our lives for the brothers. Does that mean we're we're to die for one another? Well, it could come to that. Certainly, there's places in the world where there's martyrdom, even in a, a... I think uh, one illustration of this in a slightly less than martyrdom, but what must the physician think when they see a loved one who needs a particular organ and, 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 and they have a family member say, take mine, take my kidney that this person can live. What, a, what an incredible act of love. You see, they're, they're, they're saying, I'm gonna lose so that this person can, can win. That's an act of incredible love. You see that? But, but is that what it means? Is it talking about you know, giving over our bodies to take a bullet for somebody? Is that what it's talking about? Well, so often in the case in Scripture, the radical is displayed in the routine. The radical is displayed in the routine. He says, we've got to lay down our lives for one another like Christ. Here's an example, verse 17. Martyrdom? Death? Well, start with this. Verse 17, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love in word or deed. No, let us not love in word or talk, but indeed in truth. Isn't that something? He says, Christians, we gotta lay down our life with all things by helping somebody in need. <laughs> That's how. The most significant part of this verse, I think, by the way, is did you notice the intentional change? Look, if anyone has the world's goods and sees, did you notice that? His brother. He has intentionally switched from the plural to the singular. Everybody see that? He doesn't say, guys, we've got to love one another. We've got to love the brothers. Right here he says, we've got to help his brother. Why is that so important? Because we all know it is very easy to love capital H humankind. 
it is very difficult to love actual lowercase humans. Does everybody know what I'm talking about? Jesus doesn't say love the world. He says love your neighbor. Like the little boy who was overheard on a crowded elevator, crushed in press, saying to his mommy, Mommy, I love the world. It's people I can't stand. You see that? Love your brother. Love is specific. He doesn't just say love everybody. He says love Bob from accounting who keeps giving you a hard time about your cover sheets on your report. He doesn't just say love the world. He says love Harry, your neighbor, you know, with the dog that barks at 3 a.m. Yeah, love him, see? Not just love humanity, but love that spouse you married, that flesh and blood human, not just in word or talk, but in deed and truth. You know what that is, right? The difference between word and talk and deed and truth. Word and talk says, oh, God bless you. Deed and truth means I'll sacrifice so that you can receive blessing. Word and talk is praying for you, praying for you. Deed and truth is actually praying for you. See the difference? Let us not just love and word or talk, but deed and truth. We've all done that. And as a theme that's throughout the letter, you may look to that as assurance that you were saved. Verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. So here it is, the love indicator. Love is the fruit of the spirit, the preeminent Christian virtue, the objective test of our Christian profession, True love in the sense of self-sacrifice is not natural to human beings in their fallen state. Its existence in anyone is evidence of a new birth, the indwelling spirit. These are actual things we can point to. Not things we professed or felt or intended or imagined, but actual things we've done. So the fruit of the spirit is love, but you might say the fruit of love is confidence. By this we may know. We've got the doctrine test, the doctrine indicator, we've got the obedience indicator, and here, the love indicator. Do you want to have assurance of salvation? Do you want to know that you're saved? You can look as evidence to the love you have for one another. But there it is. We spent so long on the command we obey. I told you, you just need a little time for these next two, because there, there's the problem. And that's where I started this message. (sighs) You know, you hear a message like this, and really it couldn't be simpler. I mean, don't be like Cain, be like Jesus. And if you love people like Jesus, you'll know you're saved. Well, I mean, is anybody else go, well, that, that's the problem. I mean, what if you're here today and you're hearing all this and alarm bells are firing off on your conscience? Remember, like I said, like that prosecuting attorney accusing you, even right now saying, see, see, what about all that you've done wrong? That preacher's up there preaching that you shouldn't be like Cain, you should be like Jesus. And and if you're like Jesus, that's part of the evidence you know you're a Christian. But you know you're not like Jesus. You know you've been more like Cain, and you've cut people down, and you've had hatred. And you're filled with anxiety and fear right now. Is there any hope for you? What about the condemnation you face? Yes. Listen. This next verse is one of the most powerful verses in all of Scripture for Christians who battle condemnation and the anxiety and the lack of of assurance that accompany it. And here it is. Verse 20. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. I love this verse. I love it that when John says whenever our heart, not if. 
In other words, Christian, not if you go through times of doubt or feeling you're hopeless or, or worthless or accused, but when your heart or your conscience or your emotions are tossing you to and fro, that's not an if situation, that's a when. It's gonna happen to all of us. Some of you are constituted in such a way it happens more frequently, I think, than others, but it's when, not if. And when that happens, you must realize your heart is not the final judge of your salvation. Why? Because it is not 100% perfectly calibrated. What do I mean? Listen carefully. There's only two things that can be true when your heart condemns you. When you wake up and you feel accusation and you feel condemnation and you are in a sermon like this and you go, well, maybe, maybe I'm not saved because I, 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 I can't... I, I can't ever seem to get it right, and I'm struggling so much, right? There's only two possible things. One is the accusation, it, it's either just or it's unjust. It's either, it, your heart is either accusing you unjustly or justly. If the accusation is unjust, then it's something like this. Your heart will say to you, you know, you never love people. Look at you. You're always selfish. You're a lousy parent. You're failing as a spouse. If that's true, that is unjust condemnation. You don't never, you're not never love. You're not always selfish. God is greater and he can see what your heart is forgetting. That you sometimes do love. You sometimes aren't selfish. That despite all your prosecuting attorney may say, you're raising a great kid. You're being faithful to your spouse. You're putting food on the table. And your heart doesn't seem to know any of that. But guess who does? God knows everything. So you can allow him to be your judge. You can appeal to him. But, of course, there is the other possibility that your heart is actually justly accusing you. What do you do then? Sometimes I have to smile at the prosecuting attorney who lives in my head. You know the one? I wake up in the morning and I hear something like, you call yourself a preacher. Your sermons are way too simple to be that long. You know, it's only a matter of time before everybody in the church finds out you don't know what you're doing. I have to laugh because I must admit, his case is not without merit. <laughs> what do you do when your heart condemns you? And he's right. Your hope is still, 1 John 3, 20, that God is greater than my heart, and he knows everything. Which means he knows my failures, he knows my sins, and he knows the sinless, spotless Lamb of God has paid for everyone. So therefore, God is greater, and when my heart accuses me, I simply move to a higher court. And there, in the halls of heaven, God who gave his only begotten son to save a wretch like me, their God can do what all higher courts can do, and he may overrule the lower court that is my heart. See? God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. And so I know, I, I, my hunch is, there's somebody here this morning who feels locked in a prison of accusation and anxious self-condemnation. And 1 John 3.20 is the key you need to spring that lock and be set free from that prison. Well, uh, 
Chuck's going to come and lead us in a time of response. I spent so much time on, uh, on uh, the command we obey and uh, the condemnation we face. That, that third point, the communion we share, once that heart issue is settled, really, it, it's just the delight of, of, of confidence and fellowship and boldness in prayer. Look at some of the blessings. Verse 21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, look at what we get. We have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. This doesn't mean, obviously, that whatever we ask is carte blanche. It means that as we walk in fellowship with the Lord, we have more confidence in prayer. It's like we have more assurance that when we go to our Heavenly Father, he's going to hear us. One writer put it this way, when our delight is in the love of God, our desires will become the will of God. See? And the Bible word for this kind of relating is one of John's favorite words. It's verse 24, and we'll end there. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. This is the first time the Holy Spirit's been mentioned explicitly, but he's been there all along in this letter. He is the one who gives new birth. He is the one who empowers love for others. You might think, well, maybe I can muster up a bunch of strength and get this right. No, you can't. It's only in dependence of the Holy Spirit. He alone can bring dead men to life, to abide in God. And that's the fellowship we're after. That's why we obey the command to love, to create, to, 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 give, to, to reveal, I should say, the evidence of love. And, and so that we can tell that old heart that sometimes gets it right, but sometimes gets it wrong. Either way, we're appealing to a higher court. It's God alone. And there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. What remains to be done? Abide. You know, I heard an illustration of abide this week that I can't shake. I keep thinking about it. The preacher even admitted it's not a perfect illustration, but maybe it's because of my season of life. But boy, it hit me. He said, when we think about abide in God and God abides in you, he says, uh, think about uh, snuggling with your little kids. Uh, Pretty good. He says, you get a kid in there, and I mean, he says, I mean snuggling big time. When they're real little, you get, you get a couple of them. Every little nook and cranny all fit together like a couple human just Lego blocks all connected, right? He says, and as you get older, their, their little elbows become like sharp swords. So you have to get extra padding. He says, but nature helps you have extra padding too. And when you're really snuggled up there together, if someone were to, and you fall asleep like that, he said, if someone were to come up to you, you got legs and arms sticking everywhere, you wouldn't know who was who. It'd take you forever to disentangle. He says, Is that, isn't, that, isn't that kind of a picture of the kind of fellowship we want with our Heavenly Father? Abiding with Him. No condemnation, no fear. And as we're abiding, snuggled up to God, it could be that we're more snuggled up to other believers, right? The sense of, of love that flows from the Holy Spirit. And that kind of life just leads to more life. So I hope you're free from that accusation, free from that condemnation this morning, that you may know. Let's pray. God, grant to us this fresh freedom this morning, that we might be filled with your Holy Spirit. If there's anyone here who does not know you or anyone here who is living a lie that these, these evidences in 1 John would reveal that. But Lord, if there's believers who are walking around in doubt and a lack of uh, assurance of salvation, that today would be that day they receive that assurance, Lord. Grant them that. Grant us that. 
For you are greater than our hearts and you know everything. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.